Γεια σας. Με λένε Πέτρο, μένω στο Λονδίνο, μιλάω ελληνικά και εσείς ακούτε το Fluent Show. Welcome to the Fluent Show, a podcast all about loving, living and learning languages. Hey everyone, my name is Kirsten Cable from fluentlanguage.co.uk and here on the Fluent Show, I tell you about anything and everything interesting from the world of learning another language. In today's show, you're going to hear an interview with two extremely interesting guests and it is a topic that came to me not because I've ever heard about it. The topic is heritage languages. And if you're thinking, what, what is a heritage language? Don't worry, I was, I was exactly the same. I learned about this because of stories that listeners told me and stories that you have been telling me and finally cracking down on giving you a show today that is dedicated to heritage languages. My guests are two researchers in the field. They've got a really interesting and broad background and we talked about Greeks and Cypriots, Ukrainians, Germans, Russians and plenty more about immigration, status and what it what happens when you have had a bilingual childhood and then as an adult you somehow can't speak that language. So what is going on there? So a heritage language is a language learned by its speakers at home as children. So if your parents spoke a different language and in your everyday life you're speaking, let's say English, your parents spoke a different language, and then your language skills never fully developed. So you, as an adult, suddenly you don't find yourself fluent in that language at all. And there are reasons for that, and they have to do with the social environment that you're in. But that social environment reflects the world that you live in. So it's a fascinating topic. I touched on this a little bit in episode 86, way back, but there's so much more to be discovered. And this time, like I said, I recruited Katie and Petros, two academics who study this topic. That's what you've got to look forward to. Before that, I have two announcements that I want you to be aware of. So first of all, let me tell you about our show sponsor, pretty new show sponsor, and it is Link. Uh, the cool thing about Link, you know, when you hear podcast sponsorships and they're always telling you about this is founded and that's founded by two college dropouts with a big ideas and they went and bought a, this factory in, in Germany and whatever, it raises and stuff. No, no, no. Link is different. Link has not been founded by two college dropouts with a big ideas. Instead, it's got the brain of a famous polyglot behind it. And that is Steve Kaufman. Steve himself speaks 17 languages. He loves learning new ones. I've recently interviewed him, so you've got that to look forward to here on the show as well. And there is nothing, nowhere, he says, that is more effective than working with comprehensible materials, so stuff that you understand, and that you actually enjoy. It's way better than stuff like my recent textbook dialects for dialogues for learning Chinese, which have been oh, a little bit outdated, let's just say. I tell you that. So we can just all stop listening to two businessmen meet at a conference and then they talk to each other about each other's phone numbers. I mean, come on. And then just start to enjoy the stuff that you actually want to hear about. And Link has got it all. It is a, a total language learner's favorite. It's a great, great place and a sponsor that I've been chasing because I wanted to tell you about them. Here's how it works. You read or you listen to the content that you love and that content really 
covers it because it could be podcasts, videos, anything. You learn new words and phrases, you can just click on them, track your progress, enjoy your journey, and then anytime, anywhere, it just works. Link is offering all of you as Fluent Show listeners a special deal. So please do use their link, use the link to link, uh, to get 35% off selected premium plans. It's a great deal when you get your subscription through this fluentlanguage.co.uk slash read more. That's where I want you to go, fluentlanguage.co.uk slash read more. Pop over there. You're letting them know that you're supporting, that you're listening, that it's, it's getting them excited as a supporter of the show and you're getting a deal. So everybody wins. That's Link, thank you so much to them. Uh, secondly, I've got a big announcement. I'm, I'm actually re-recording the show intro for this a few days before this class goes live because I just had to share the news and, you know, I was just making the editor work extra because I want you to hear this. I've got a live class coming up. I've not done a live class for ages and, you know, flexing the muscles, getting getting ready again. Help me get back on the wagon, please, and come to my free live class about my vocab system and about improving your vocab memory. Since I created the course over Christmas, it's been a topic that has been not just on my mind, but on many of your minds. I've had questions from the patrons on Patreon. It means so much to me if people can feel more confident about vocab because it's such a cornerstone of language learning. And I'm inviting all my listeners, and that means you listening right now, whatever you're doing, you are invited to. To cover this view of learning, I will talk about different points about flashcards. I will talk about why some people get incredibly frustrated by being so forgetful and how we can perhaps remedy that. And even more importantly, I will tell you some tricks that make words stickier so that you don't forget them. It takes place tomorrow. So if you're listening to the podcast on the day it comes out, you can still sign up tomorrow, Tuesday, 28th of January at 5 p.m. GMT. That is British time, Greenwich Mean Time. And the link for that is fluentlanguage.co.uk slash live class. Come and join me if you can. It'll be great to have you. And there's another awesome announcement about your solid vocab memory. So lots and lots and lots of really great stuff going on. Thank you so much to Link. Thank you so much for you. If you're coming to the live class, everybody's invited and it's totally free. And of course, as always, want to give a big shout out and a thank you to the Fluent Show patrons who have been so generously supporting the show and every patron, no matter whether you give a dollar or you give $15 a month or whatever tier you're on, every single patron keeps this show free for all of you. So Give one a high five if you meet one. Go to Patreon and search for Fluent Show if you want to become one. Now, time for the interview. This has been a fascinating interview and I've been looking forward to sharing it with you. There's been questions from listeners and questions from patrons included in the interview. And like I said, we talked about lots of things around immigration status and having a bilingual childhood. And they introduced me, Katie. And Petros, my guests, introduced me to the concept of complementary schools. So you'll be hearing lots about those and why complementary schools make a huge difference, especially to heritage learners. Because as it turns out, the heritage learner is kind of their own entity in between bilingual person and adult learners. So if like you or if you know somebody who spoke another language as a child or even another dialect, 
as a child and grew up and somehow it hasn't stuck and they want to revisit the show. We talk about uh, the show. <laughs> they want to revisit the language. We talk in this interview about ways that you as a heritage learner can come back and start learning that language and why it is so important that you are aware and that you know your status as a heritage learner and how that makes you different from most adult learners. It was fascinating. And certainly, as always, in every good interview that I, I have, my assumptions were, were challenged. My, my mind was opened and I hope it does the same for you. Now, that was a, a long intro. Thank you so much for sticking with me. Let's get cracking, you know. Let's get you into the interview with Katie and Pedros. Pedros and Katie, welcome to The Fluent Show. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for inviting us. Oh, I'm super excited about this. So both of you are academics working with heritage and community languages. That's what we're going to talk about today. Petros, you're a sociolinguist working in London and you are Greek with an even richer linguistic background than Greek living in London. What makes you curious about the topic of heritage languages in particular? Uh, yes, I mean, I guess my... Um my linguistic background, my family history has always made me interested in uh, finding more stuff out about languages. So um, I, I was born in Greece, but my parents were born in Hungary, uh, two Greek parents who had fled Greece after the, um, the civil war in around 1948. So my parents grew up in a very multilingual uh, village in Hungary where you had Uh, Greek spoken, you had Macedonian spoken, you had, of course, Hungarian being spoken, and also Vlark. So um, when my parents moved to Greece in the um, 1980s, I was born in, uh, in Greece in a family that spoke most of these languages. So my parents uh, speak Hungarian and Greek between them. Uh, my grandmother speaks Macedonian and I was of course uh, being raised in a majority Greek-speaking context. So I, I've always been interested in what languages mean for the people who speak them, the kinds of histories that they they symbolize and uh, sort of encapsulate and of course purely linguistic questions about how languages work and how they are different. Um, so I remember specifically when I was um, at school and we learned French and um, I remember this incident with um, uh, another pupil. Uh, we were learning about the word for bridge, uh, which in French is masculine and gender. Uh, in Greek, it's feminine. So uh, I remember uh, that pupil um, sort of um, arguing, how is it possible that bridge is is masculine but it's it's feminine and to me it seems such a natural thing that things don't have to work in the same way in other languages um so i guess that's my my background in being curious about languages and then when i uh, i moved to london five years ago i started working with um Cypriot greek as a community language here in um in london My background is in the study of Greek dialects and Cypriot Greek is the most uh, widely spoken Greek dialect in the world today. Uh, it's spoken, of course, in Cyprus, but it has a very, very large representation in London. Uh, so that's how I got interested in this, uh, in this area. Wow. So your parents, you said, spoke Hungarian and Greek. Did 
were you aware of occasions when they would code switch or what sort of influenced whether they were speaking Hungarian or Greek, just mood on the day? Um, that, that's a very interesting question because um, uh, originally it seemed like such a natural thing to me to um, for my parents to mix the, the, the two languages or to speak the two languages. So when people came to visit from Hungary or when my parents um, visited other uh, Greeks who had been born in Hungary and they spoke Hungarian, that was a natural thing. Until my grandfather, um, who was... Um, a rather strict sort of family man said to me that, oh, your dad, he doesn't speak any language properly. He doesn't speak Greek properly. He doesn't speak Hungarian properly. Oh. He mixes them all the time. So um, I still remember that him saying that. And that's when all this interest of mine in um, the mixing of languages and the attitudes of people towards sort of non-proper by-the-book ways of speaking, uh, I think started to develop. So there's already something there. There's a real judgment there that I, I'll ask you about later as well. Just this idea that mixing your languages means not speaking them properly. This That, that really stands out to me. Um, Katie, I'll ask you, you're a British language learner from a monolingual background, but with a deep interest in Russian and Ukrainian studies. What makes the Russian and Ukrainian pair so interesting for you? Um, I... I was thinking about this and um, although I've been brought up in kind of a British household with English as the only language, I think maybe also my curiosity towards languages stems from the fact that my grandmother, who we lived with when I was younger, was actually a French teacher. And so she used to spend a lot of time on the phone when I was living with her, speaking in French to French friends throughout the day. So I think that might have kind of sparked a curiosity. But then at school, I was perhaps, I don't know, slightly rebellious and decided French wasn't going to be the language that I pursued. And mm -hmm. Russian was the second language taught in my school for a bizarre reason. So... That's how Russian came about. And I was always encouraged to study other languages. Um, and once once I was deciding what to do for university, Russian seemed like, for some reason, the obvious thing to do. And then I spent some time in Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine when I was an undergraduate student on my year abroad. And when I was in Ukraine, um, language policy and issues related to language are quite emotional, they're quite politicized, and that got me interested in the combination of the two languages. And then I discovered that there was a fairly kind of established Ukrainian community in the United Kingdom, and I wanted to see how the language situation that I had observed in Ukraine itself how that played out within the community within the UK. So I guess that's how that interest has happened. And now it's kind of led me more broadly into considering heritage, community languages in the United Kingdom more generally. So yeah, that's how that has all kind of evolved over time. Mm, that's fascinating, the political judgment. Now, the, the two of you are both based in the UK. Does that mean you mostly study like diaspora communities that, that are in the UK? I would say 
personally it's the thing that I know more about and it's kind of I think there are a few of us who look at different communities in the UK and we often share ideas or share findings so yeah what would you say Petros? Yes I would say we mostly work in the UK um, because there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, now, um, of course, the fact that the UK is a very multilingual um, uh, country is very well known, and it, it, it's it's talked about frequently um, in public discourse as well. It's on the news every so often. You find an article somewhere saying that London, especially, and other major cities in the UK are big linguistic melting pots. Um, but um, in most cases, people won't go any deeper. They won't look um, any further at what is happening below the surface of this remarkable linguistic mosaic. So you, you're more likely to hear something like 300 languages are spoken in London or 200 languages are spoken in Manchester. But what happens in terms of who speaks these languages how do they learn them? How do they maintain them? How do they lose them? Why do they lose them? And what does it mean for them? And um, uh, there's all this sort of parallel universe of languages being spoken in um, in the UK that if you're not from a, from a minority background, if you don't have a community language of your own, you wouldn't normally know about this stuff. And this isn't only an issue in public discourse. I mean, a lot of research uh, needs to be done um, about these issues, uh, about community languages, especially the social linguistic aspects of it that Katie and I are interested in. Um, issues of language education. Uh, Katie and I both work on complementary schools, so the Saturday schools where communities send their children to learn their heritage language. So there's a lot of work to be done. Um, that said, uh, we would be very interested, and we are very interested in comparing the UK experience with the experience of other countries, but we're still focusing on the UK um, as there is so much out there that uh, we feel needs to be uh, to be covered with research and also public engagement. Mm. As I was reaching out to listeners of the podcast and sort of telling them what's coming up and interviews, I heard from lots of people with so many different linguistic um, profiles, I would almost say. So I've had people get in touch who's, I think I had a grandmother who spoke Hokkien, and, um, but, but she's an Australian listener. And then I've got Americans who have grown up in a sort of Polish-speaking household, but lost most of their Polish or don't feel like Polish speakers themselves. I've spoken to Americans, a lot of them who have got uh, Spanish as as a heritage language where they sort of know Spanish, but they don't feel confident in it. And I um, I mentioned this to you before, and I, I kind of think about my own linguistic backgrounds. And Katie, like you, I thought I'd grown up monolingual. And <laughs> looking at it now, I realized I actually grew up speaking Moserfränkisch, which is a dialect that is quite different from German <laughs> and I sort of well everybody spoke it around me but then when I went to school what the the impulse was no get the kid to speak German you know get the kid to speak proper German and in Germany I think this is quite because we've got a standard variant um, dialects are sort of not really in mainstream education so this topic of language loss really interests me and you you mentioned 
communities losing their languages. And from what I have heard this year's Year of Indigenous Languages, so we've looked at it quite a bit with the podcast, and the theme that keeps coming up again and again is the politics in there as well and the sort of almost oppression of of the mainstream language. How does that play out with a heritage language? How does that play out in the UK? It's... Um... It's very common the situation that you um, that you describe, and it's it's very um, a poignant that you mention that this year is a year of regional and indigenous languages because these languages um, tend to be um, institutionally protected uh, by nation states and by governments. Uh, so, for example, in the UK, um, Scots Gaelic. Uh, uh, is protected by the Scottish government. Welsh is protected by the Welsh government. Uh, other indigenous languages in the UK are protected. Um, there is a bit of an issue with Irish in Northern Ireland, but generally speaking, um, uh, indigenous languages tend to be protected by governments and also by uh, international organizations. So for, for example, there's the European Charter for Regional and Minority Languages that the UK has signed and, and ratified. Now, what's interesting is that the regional, the, the European Charter excludes the languages um, of immigrants from its remit. So the languages of immigrants don't tend to have a lot of institutionally enshrined support in terms of funding or in terms of specific actions that need to be taken for them to be protected. In the UK, um, in, in, this was an issue in the 1980s. So in 1985, um, the Swan Report was published that basically said that immigrant communities in the UK have to um, make their own arrangements for protecting their languages in terms of providing language education to the younger generations. So the report said that mainstream education should not be uh, providing any support for community languages, which is when um, the complementary schools uh, were um, sort of um, experienced a boom in the UK as many communities tried to support language education uh, using their own means. And of course, this creates difficulties because it's not always possible, it's always economically possible, socially possible, possible to do this without um, uh, government support. Mm, that really, that to me is that I've, I didn't know, first of all, about the regional languages being in a way, having a having a more protected status than so so languages like Welsh and Gaelic in in um, in in the UK, and I guess that would then extend to something like Basque and all of those languages that we see in Spain, and then things like Sicilian as well, perhaps even Occitan. Yeah, I mean, um, in different countries, in different states, you have different politics. Uh, towards uh, indigenous languages, so some will tend to be protected. Others, if if there are any sort of political issues around their use, might not have um, great protection. But generally speaking, and on an international stage, uh, indigenous minority languages tend to have more support and prestige than the languages of immigrants. Mm -hmm. So, in terms of in terms of the political status so we're, we're looking we're looking in a way at more of a hierarchy than than just oh we've got i'm thinking about the uk we've got english as our mainstream language and then we've got welsh and scots gaelic languages which have been lost and to a certain extent have been pushed out but who have had 
let's say, an argument for pushing back. And then we've got almost a third tier that is the that is the immigrant languages. Is that is that to do with economic status of immigrants generally? I think it has to do with the status of immigrants, but um, I would argue that even within this third uh, tier that uh, Kirsty has um, has described, there is more hierarchization within that. Within domain. definitely. So, uh, so the the languages of some immigrants have more uh, prestige than the languages of other uh, immigrants, and we can even discuss about whether someone who um, migrates from France to the UK for work uh, qualifies as a prototypical immigrant compared to someone who, say, migrates from Eastern Europe to work mm-hmm. in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so all this, um, the, the values attached to languages uh, are basically indicators of the values attached or the, the attitudes towards the speakers who speak those languages. Uh, and the, the 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 values and the perceptions of languages will change if the perceptions of the speakers will change. So, for example, if you have a very um, so well-off group that uh, lives in uh, in the UK and speaks a major European language, then that language will be considered to be prestigious, um, useful. Uh, desirable. Whereas if you have uh, a migrant group that is of a lower socioeconomic status, generally speaking, their language will not be considered as um, as useful, as important, as worthy of protection and maintenance. So I have a, I have a question here, um, because what you're saying really resonates with me as a German person who came to the UK. I did not, perhaps until Brexit, never really felt that I was an immigrant as such. Um, I, I never really, I didn't have the, it wasn't necessary for me to think about it because I was just here, spoke good English, came from Germany and never got, never got perceived as an other by, by most English, English people that I came across. At what point then do, because you mentioned, say, an Eastern European community, and if somebody comes and they're from Poland, you're, you're seen as, as a group. Is that, do we think it's, is that about the volume of, of people who come so that they start creating their own community? Or is that related to, I'm thinking, you know, the, like the German community in the UK isn't particularly strong because the kind of Germans who come here, we don't really like even look for each other. When you run into another one, you're like, oh yeah, you're here too. Cool. Okay. Whatever. Um, whereas in, in the Polish community, certainly I see so much more of that sense of we are here together and, you know, there, there's church meetings and there's organizations and there's outreach to the, the British community. And we get this with, say, the Nigerian communities in London as well. And I don't really know so much about the Greeks and Greek Cypriots, but I would be really interested in in what influences whether different immigrants create a, a community within themselves. Mm-hmm. I think in my case with, say, Ukrainians, the reason that they originally formed their groups was because of the situation and the kind of historical background with which they migrated. So a lot of them were refugees after World War II, mainly from Western Ukraine. So they were kind of, quite a few of them were over here. And I think that kind of sense of the kind of 
almost trauma that's attached to that migration probably meant that they formed the communities and the groups that they established then so 70 years ago that are still active today and I think that with that community particularly that has been what has kind of caused them to form that group but I also think going back to the kind of I don't know the say the comparison of German speakers in the UK and Polish speakers in the UK I perhaps also think that kind of the prestige that is attached to German in some ways it's a language that is taught in schools and in universities so perhaps isn't almost seen as being as foreign or as different and has a kind of higher status than Polish perhaps as well I mean it um I think it also has to do with this, uh, what, what Katie mentioned as well, the, whether um, people who are on the move consider themselves to be the more cosmopolitan type of, of migrant uh, or the more sort of economically driven type of, of migrant. So a cosmopolitan type of migrant is someone who migrates because they, they want to and for them it's an option, it's a choice that they go for, it's something that they explore, um, but they're not necessarily pushed to, to migration. Whereas the, the economic migrant is looking for better, um, better prospects in life, really. Um, so for them, leaving their home country might not be considered for them to be a choice that they have, uh, and that which they may not take, but something that they have to do if they want to have a better life or if they have a family and they want to provide for, for their family. Um, so depending on the reasons for which you leave your home country, I think that determines whether in the, the host country you will establish communities or you will look for, uh, for connections with your homeland. Mm, that makes, that makes an awful lot of sense. And I even, um, I'm thinking I used to do international recruitment for, for universities. And even there, the, depending on what kind of country you visit, you see different, different, um, motivations for looking for university if for example in the UK and you see people attaching a different status to to the UK and then probably also to to the English language now when people establish a community and and keep their keep their language going what are the kind of benefits and and disadvantages or advantages of disadvantages that they experience from that um, I think the sense of community and often um, a kind of shared background is something that people kind of find quite comforting about the communities that they form. And I think in terms of the kind of complementary schools and keeping the language alive across generations or at least attempting to do that also kind of gives that sense of making the generations who were born in the UK aware of that heritage and their past. And I think language is one way that seems to be quite, I don't know, quite popular among different community groups. And I think often, yeah, I think often the language is linked to that idea of culture and history. And I think that's a thing that people take quite a lot from so kind of the sense of community and the language as the link to that kind of heritage culture I would say. 
Yes, um, it's I, I was um, incidentally reading the the curriculum uh, that the Ministry of Education and Culture of the Republic of Cyprus uh, is working on for uh, Greek complementary schools in in the UK, um, and this idea comes uh, comes across really strongly that. Um, uh, the main sort of mission of diaspora education is to instill into the new generations of British-born Greek Cypriots a range of um, uh, sort of characteristics, traits, um, traditions, uh, anything that basically makes them Greek Cypriot in terms of knowing where they come from, where the parents come from, knowing the language, the culture, elements of history, religion. Um, so communities plays a lot of importance on keeping what makes them what they are. And they sort of try to resist assimilating too quickly or too much to what they perceive to be a host country culture. Um, so someone who has lost the, their heritage language, it is in danger of being perceived as being less Greek, let's say, or less Greek Cypriot, less Cypriot than someone who still speaks the language. Mm -hmm. And is there a tension between that for, for little kids and kids who are entering school age? Is there a tension between that and straight up xenophobia? I mean, yeah, all, um, I mean, at least the, the people I have talked to about my research, especially um, those who are in the middle, sort of middle-aged now, uh, they all report um, uh, experiences of racism and xenophobia, and this played a big role in them not wanting to um, to speak their their home languages at least in public. So we we'll still get reports of um, children growing up with um, a home language who are happy if, and have no problem speaking their home language until they go to school when they realize that the, the the majority and the prestigious language is English so then they come back to their parents saying please don't speak our home language in front of my friends mm -hmm. how does how does a complementary school program interact with that I think often complementary schools there's been quite a bit of research that has looked into the kind of um the kind of nurturing of the identity and the kind of complementary schoolers providing a kind of safe space that kind of counters that kind of monolingualizing force almost that the mainstream school kind of becomes like like Petros a lot of my um, a lot of the people who I spoke to for my research said that they only spoke Ukrainian at home and then when they were five or six and started mainstream school that's when it started to kind of decline and they would not use their heritage language as often and yeah I think that's kind of when it comes to complementary schools they do provide that space through which the young people can kind of use their heritage language or kind of play with their heritage language and that identity, the kind of heritage identity that comes with speaking that language. So I think often complementary schools are seen as quite a safe space for that to happen. I mean, there's been uh, research, um, especially by... Um... People like Angela Kreese, Edwin Blackledge, uh, Valley Lytra, who make the point that complementary schools challenge the monolingualizing discourses of 
societies like the UK's uh, by, by their very existence, by the fact that they, they exist and they provide education in, in languages other than English sort of challenges this wider discourse. And um, I'm not sure of the exact number of complementary schools in the UK, but according to some estimates, uh, there are around five to 6,000 complementary schools in the UK uh, spread all around the country. Um, but the question is, um, do people know that these schools exist? I mean, if, as I said, before, if someone does not come from a minority community that has another language, how how known are these schools to the the wider public, and um, how much do people know about what what is happening in the schools and how important they are for basically maintaining the multilingual fabric of the UK? I I, I don't think they are. They tend to be very well known. Mm -hmm. That's something that um, with the new project that I'm working on where we're trying to survey supplementary schools and see kind of which ones there are, where they are. We're also um, asking whether the mainstream school teachers even are aware that some of their students attend complementary schools. And it's going to be quite interesting to see whether or not they are aware that some of their students have this extra part of their education. I'm not sure if that's something that's been looked at in too much detail before either. But I certainly, until I was doing my master's, so five or six years ago, didn't know that such schools existed in the UK. And some of them have been here for over 50 years now, the schools. So, yeah, how aware are the general public of complementary schools? I'm not so sure. Mm, I, w I work with languages and I've never heard of this. <laughs> <laughs> and even teachers, I mean, um, we have um, a lot of reports coming in from um, the director of the National Resource Centre for Supplementary Education, uh, Pascal Vassi, um, who reported at an event that um, I organised last April, and Katie was there as well, and so very often these complementary schools will operate in mainstream school premises, so they will rent out uh, some classrooms and some spaces in mainstream schools. So um, the same pupils will go to the same building, basically, for the mainstream school and the complementary school. And teachers who work in the mainstream school will not know that complementary schools operate in the same buildings after hours and the, the, the very same pupils sit on the same uh, desks in the morning and the afternoon learning different things. Um, so imagine how, what impact this disconnect will have for the pupils, how they, they will sort of learn to compartmentalize their experiences and different aspects of themselves. Yeah, so the sort of the mainstream aspect, the majority sort of assimilation, integration aspect by means of the mainstream school, and then the complementary school will be something like something that people don't know about, something that I do, but only the people from my community know about it, and it's only important for us. So it's it's very interesting to explore this aspect, and the project that Katie is working on now is is very important in this respect. I think this is something that, that stood out to me, when, when Katie, when you mentioned about um, claiming that identity and playing with the language and having a safe space through complementary school. And you touched on it as well, Petros. I'm, I was thinking how how torn you must feel as a 
say a child with with a migrant background living in a living in a country that doesn't really where you don't really know where to put that identity what what psychological impact does it have to you know to to come from this type of background is there is there some common theme that you see so a common theme in terms of what so can you repeat a common theme in terms of um in terms of the impact that it has to to have these two identities that somehow have to coexist I mean, I haven't looked at it um, uh, specifically in my research, but what emerges from a lot of work that has been done in this area is that um, multilingual speakers and members of uh, minority communities will form what we call hybrid identities. So they will basically negotiate different they, different aspects of their identity depending on um the everyday circumstances. So for some specific aspects, they will identify as British, whereas for other, in other instances, they will identify as, say, Greek or Greek Cypriot or British Cypriots. Uh, and they will sort of incorporate different elements of all these different cultural systems in in themselves and in their interactions with, with others. Um, and I have a very... Um, uh, I think it's a, it's a relevant um, uh, anecdote. Um, so once I interviewed um, uh, a British-born uh, Greek Cypriot man, and uh, he was telling me about how he visited Cyprus, and he went to a bank in Cyprus to do some of his business. And Cyprus is one of those countries that have um, uh, that have identity cards. So in Cyprus, you need your ID to do anything, basically, from any basic transaction. So the, the, the clerk at the bank asked for his um, ID to, um, to do his transaction. And my, the speaker I interviewed um, took this as a major compliment uh, because the clerk didn't, wasn't able to tell that uh, the man had been born in Britain. Yeah, and because his Greek or his Greek, uh, his Cypriot Greek was so good. And when he was asked for his ID card, he responded to the clerk, I don't have one because I'm British. So he used, he said he was British to sort of emphasize the achievement of speaking Greek that well that people think that he's Greek Cypriot, even though he had been born uh, in the UK and he holds British uh, nationality. Now, in other in another aspect of that interview that I did with him, he said to me that he would he felt that if he lost the the Greek language, if he didn't speak Greek, he wouldn't be one hundred percent Cypriot. Of course, I didn't ask him. So, what are you then? Are you British, like you told to the clerk, or are you Cypriot, like you're telling me now? Uh, I think this shows the hybrid identities that speakers like like him form. So, and how they they basically negotiate depending on how they want to to uh, project themselves as multilingual, multicultural uh, individuals. Mm -hmm. I think there are lots of kind of examples of this kind of like hybridity in the identity. So um, the teacher at the complementary school where I conducted quite a few observations, um, she described her daughter as putting on different identity hats as and when her daughter's kind of seven or eight and her daughter would change hats depending on the situation she was in and how she felt but what I also 
kind of find quite interesting about this kind of hybrid plural identity that we see in diaspora communities or in a complementary school is that often it's not just the kind of heritage culture that is attached to the school. So in my school, it wasn't just a case of a Ukrainian identity and a British identity. Often there are young people who have parents from two different ethnic backgrounds. So that played out in the way that students would identify. So some had a Polish parent and a Ukrainian parent, but it also had an impact on the languages that were being used in the classroom. So it wasn't just hearing various combinations of English and Ukrainian being employed, you would hear Polish and Russian and various other languages. And I think that's quite, I wouldn't say, I don't know enough, but I wouldn't say that's too uncommon in different complementary schools where we don't just hear one or two languages or just one type of the heritage language. They're actually quite diverse within themselves. Mm. And in terms of you. Ukrainians and Russians. I'm I'm sort of marginally aware of the political conflicts between Ukraine and Russia, but not deeply. Is uh, do people then get claim that those identities stronger, either Russian or Ukrainian? Are there anybody who says? Uh, is there anybody who says I'm both? Um, never both. <laughs> never ever kind of a Russian identity or a Ukrainian identity. In Ukraine itself, like it's fine often to identify as Ukrainian but be a Russian speaker. In the diaspora context here, it's a little more kind of complicated because the first wave of migration doesn't necessarily have any form of Russian-speaking background, whereas the newer wave of Ukrainian migration, so the post-Soviet wave, Russian is often part of their linguistic repertoire, but they would never consider that language a part of their kind of Ukrainian identity. So that's quite kind of complex, but people will use Russian. And sometimes others will react to that in quite hostile ways. And yeah, I think with kind of um, diaspora communities or with complementary schools. I think often we're not aware that there's more than just two languages, so English and the heritage language being used. And I think that's something that kind of Petros especially has been kind of driving for us to consider this diversity within these communities. And I think that's quite important too. They're not just monolingual or bilingual in English and the heritage language. Yeah, and, and, it, and we take a very sort of bold and broad definition of multilingualism. So when we, I personally, when I say that um, members of um, ethno-linguistic minorities are multilingual, I'm not just saying that they speak different languages, but also different varieties mm -hmm. of these languages. Um, and this is important because very often there are tensions. In the same way that there are tensions between English and Polish, for example, 
there are tensions between different varieties of Polish within sort of the Polish sphere. And we have a lot of um, researchers working on different communities that sort of face these tensions. So I work on the tension between Standard Greek and Cypriot Greek. Um, our colleague uh, Cisar Cavusoglu from Cyprus works on the tensions between uh, Standard Turkish and Cypriot Turkish. And of course, uh, we couldn't sort of omit mentioning um, the tensions within the Arabic speaking world between Standard Arabic, Modern Standard Arabic, and all the regional dialects of Arabic that are very, very diverse. Uh, so all of these tensions uh, operate on different layers. They, they have different sort of implications for language learning, uh, for identity, for self-image. And it's all outside our, um, it's all out there in on our doorstep, especially in in, in big cities like uh, London, where I'm based, and Manchester, where Katie is now based. Mm -hmm. That is that is fascinating to think of, you know, to 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 go one deeper and to start to to in a way remember as well and to acknowledge that somebody who is who who comes from an immigrant background or from a migrant background, often there is more than one source language there um, that 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 gets spoken. I'm thinking also of um, Bosnian, Serbian, Croatian, and the even the identity changes that those languages have gone through themselves, where it, you used to you used to group them together differently. I mean, you forgot Montenegro. <laughs> uh, <laughs> My bad. Uh, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, um, I teach this to um, my, I, I always have a lecture or a seminar about the difference between a language and a dialect. Uh, and it's interesting that students um, come into this seminar um, thinking that they know what the difference is or that they expect me to tell them um, that this is how you define a language and this is how you define a dialect and then we end up telling them that it's a social or political distinction and that languages can be created overnight so mm -hmm. the, um, the, the moment that um, Montenegro decided that it has it speaks a different language to Serbia there you have it Montenegrin uh, Montenegrin language and I don't know if you've seen pictures of um, cigarette packs that are sold in Serbia, Bosnia, Croatia, and Montenegro, they basically have the same warning uh, written uh, three times, once in Cyrillic and twice in the Latin alphabet. And the Latin alphabet is basically the same phrase <laughs> written twice um, because you have uh, Cyrillic for Serbian, so that's fine. Uh, and then you have, you need to have one... Um, one warning in Bosnian and one warning in Croatian, and that you end up having the same phrase written twice. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's so important to claim the identity and to, to I guess to to delineate who you are, and that that's sort of a theme that the, the identity theme that I'm I'm really I'm really seeing here, and it comes out in so many different ways, and certainly with that language group and the language dialect thing. It's I mean here here on the podcast we've we've basically got a klaxon for for language and dialect because it comes up so so regularly um, and so importantly. And and previously we've had um, Hedvig Sjögård, who she's in Australia, and she's on the Talk the Talk podcast, and she brought this lovely definition or definition, this lovely phrase where she said, 
because we used to hear a language is no, a dialect. No, what is it? A language, sorry, is a dialect with a what is it? A navy, an army, and a navy. an army and a navy, or something. And she said it's a it's a language now is a dialect with a dictionary and a missionary as well. <laughs> so so there's so much. <laughs> I could have reproduced that phrase better, but there's so much um there's there's so much that kind of goes into the status that we that we give different languages and it, it comes all the way to you know the status of, of English and, and the international variants of English that now exist. You know, why would the English spoken in India have a lower status than the English spoken in, in Britain or I mean, what is the English spoken in Britain? You know, we're going to say Yorkshire or Scots and You've, you're in a different world again, um, but I want to talk about. I wanted to ask about um, adults who have grown up, say, with heritage languages, and I have very, very often come across people who haven't had the opportunity, perhaps, to maintain the language that that might have been spoken in their household. And Petros, you might even feel that way with if you if you're not as fluent a Hungarian speaker or something like that. And there is this sense of there's this sense of loss. And I wonder I wonder whether you know what goes you know, if whether you can speak to that feeling a bit more, whether you feel like you've let yourself down, you've let your family down, don't know. Um and then what at what point an adult might want to come back and revisit that language and how they can how they can go about it, whether there are there are particular aspects to relearning a heritage language that don't apply to learning say french or chinese just as a hobby um so uh, there, there's been a, a lot of interest in sort of the psycholinguistics of heritage languages and heritage speakers in in recent recent years and um what um most researchers will um will argue is that heritage speakers are a new type of speaker so they're not on they're not native speakers of their heritage language in the same way as monolingual native speakers of that language are but they're also not on the same level or the same type of speaker as someone who learns that language as a second language uh in um late adolescence or adulthood so they're somewhere in between, and this has to do with the way that they were exposed to that language and the way they acquired it. So um, usually they, heritage speakers acquire their heritage language from birth until around the age of four or five, in pretty much the same way as monolingual speakers of that language, through interactions with family and, uh, and friends in the household and in their communities. But then when they go to school, that in that acquisition is interrupted because the majority language comes in. So some aspects of that heritage language have been acquired in the same way as in monolingual speakers. Uh, so aspects of pronunciation or uh, basic grammatical structures and, of course, uh, core vocabulary will be acquired in the same way. And these are aspects that heritage speakers will retain later in life. But anything that is acquired after the age of five or five or six uh, is more challenging and is a more vulnerable domain. This means that heritage, adult heritage speakers who want to sort of learn or relearn their heritage language 
cannot be sort of educated either as monolingual speakers or as second language speakers. So we need to have heritage language uh, programs. And these exist, um, especially in the United States uh, for Spanish, uh, Russian, um, I think Korean and a few other languages that have large speaking communities in the United States. I am not aware of any such programs in the UK. Uh, but that is the ideal way in which uh, an adult heritage speaker should approach their heritage language. So they can't start from learning ABC because obviously they they know the basics of the grammar, but they need to sort of go back to that um, foundation and build on on it uh, again. Having mentioned ABC, a very um, uh, sort of common uh, challenge is that a lot of people are able to speak their heritage languages, but they're not able to write them. Uh, so they will say that I can read, I can speak Arabic fine, but I can't read and write. So this is another challenge. And this is where the, the, the um, learning how to read and write would be more like the uh, the methods used for second language learning. Mm -hmm. I found it quite interesting um, just kind of thinking, saying your kind of need for heritage language programs. I've kind of noticed a little bit more recently that often communities that have complementary schools for children, I'm starting to see kind of adult classes in that language too. And I think that's an area that could probably be researched, um, if I'm honest, like looking at what goes on and who attends these lessons and how, what is the approach to teaching this language to adults? And I think that's quite an interesting question. But I think, yeah, it's, I found myself often um, comparing my kind of knowledge and my abilities in Ukrainian to those of heritage speakers of Ukrainian and it was quite interesting to see that like where I knew all of my case endings off by heart and about the grammar and what this word was and what it did often my friends who are heritage speakers of Ukrainian their linguistic knowledge is entirely different and is definitely more about oral production and I guess that's th through like the need to maybe talk to your grandma or other family members but yeah like definitely a massive difference between me having learned it as a foreign language and friends who are heritage speakers of Ukrainian so yeah definitely a need for a different approach to teaching but it would be interesting to see how adults are taught the heritage language in the community setting. Mm. Do, do you know anything about how that, whether there are any differences in the, U in the USA in those heritage programs? Um, I haven't looked at them in, in, in detail, um, but what I know is that they have their own curriculum uh, and they are mainly taught by at universities. So universities will offer uh, heritage Spanish, for example, heritage Russian with dedicated um, teaching materials and, and methods. Mm. So it's it's fascinating to me because you do you do kind of approach things differently. I have previously come across materials they're possibly becoming slightly more common now for the the false beginner, so to speak. So but I think that that, that is more created in with somebody in mind who may have learned a language not a heritage language, learned a foreign language perhaps in school and then they're 
25 or 30 years old and they're picking up another German book and they, you know, you look through it and you go, well, I already kind of know all of this and you skip through the first 10, 15 pages. That that commonly happens to me with, with a language. So if I picked up another romance language on top of the romance languages I know, there's certain bits that I would I would absolutely skim. But for for me, I come with an understanding of of grammar and a and a depth of thinking about grammar and and how all these languages work. That you, like you're saying, Katie, that you learn when you're a when you're a foreigner, right? Learning a learning another language. But if you grow up just with that language around you, you you bring much more of a sense of well, this is how it works, and you don't think about the theory as much. And for me, when I talk to adult learners. I often say to them that one of the big advantages that you have as an as an adult learner or advantages or the things that is different is that your conceptual thinking is the level of an adult, right? So you can actually think about grammar and how things work. And I wonder whether it would be interesting to look into whether whether it could support and and uh, help a heritage speaker to to look through how the language actually works on a on a say grammatical conceptual level Mm -hmm. I think that also I I don't know part of me would argue maybe Mm. how much would a heritage speaker necessarily want to know about the kind of workings of the language or do they want it for more practical purposes so I found a lot of my participants I kind of found the main reasons they wanted to learn or the reason the kind of function that Ukrainian played wasn't necessarily to have knowledge of a language to then apply that knowledge to the learning of another language, although some people did like that aspect of it. It was more to communicate with relatives or to go to their kind of, I'm saying it in inverted commas, homeland, so back to Ukraine and use the language there. I think their motivations might slightly differ from, say, like my motivation for learning a language, if that makes sense. Mm. No, it does, and um, it's it's very important what um, what uh, Kate has just mentioned because, uh, especially in the complementary school setting, um, we frequently find that um, the the way the curriculum is designed and the way teaching and learning is is put together. Um, is very much geared towards um, uh, getting a qualification in the com- in the community language. So, for example, the GCC in modern Greek or the A level in modern Greek, and that is a very different type of motivation from learning a hedge language to be able to communicate with family back home or with other members of the community in the diaspora context, or just for to to sort of um, feel like you've you retain an aspect of your heritage so obviously different types of motivations require different types of approaches um so ideally we would like to see uh community schools heritage language classes addressing all these different types of needs i I recognize them as equally uh important valuable and um uh equally worthy of attention rather than just focusing on say proving that you're able to speak Spanish or Greek or Russian or Polish by succeeding in a formal examination. 
I remember um, at your workshop when um, Pascal was talking. Pascal uh, runs the National Resource Centre for Supplementary Education. I think that's, yeah, NR. SCE um she was kind of saying because some of the schools they were saying well we our students can't do a GCSE or an A-level in that language and she was kind of trying to get them to think of that as a way in which they they can almost be liberated compared to the schools where the focus is solely on getting their students through a GCSE and I think often it's going to be more of a question of the balance between these things going forward so the qualification and the other important aspects of language learning and what that language can provide the young people that attend complementary schools. Mm. I'm even thinking about you know you mentioned earlier adults coming back and reading and writing in in their language but it's it has a reading and writing from when I've spoken to say people who I've spoken to Brits who have uh, African heritage, say Ibo and and um, Twi and uh, Tri, Tri, <laughs> those kinds of languages, you know, Ghana languages, Nigerian languages, who who say that they they just want to speak, they just want to speak. So the reading and writing has a different has a different status, and it's that same thing where I was thinking like it's there's a different level, there's a different desire to to learn those languages but at the same time if you've got family materials and family heirlooms that that exist in a different language you you know you you may you may have a stronger desire to to read so it's about accessing it's about accessing your own history and your own heritage isn't it mm-hmm. definitely yeah i found um in my research one of the kind of another kind of motivating force for adults to go and learn the heritage language or relearn their heritage language was because they were putting their children through complementary school and they almost didn't want to seem hypocritical that they were doing that when they weren't feeling confident in their own ability in Ukrainian. So they would go back to Ukrainian school themselves as parents to make sure that they weren't sending their child to complementary school but they were kind of unable to speak Ukrainian or um, they were worried that they wouldn't be able to help them with their homework as well so that was quite interesting that they would kind of send their children to complementary school and not question that decision for a while and then when their children were getting to the stage like a more advanced stage and almost overtaking their parents' proficiency mm-hmm. in Ukrainian, and that would force the parent to say, "Right, I need to, I need to go and relearn Ukrainian essentially, so that I can help my child with the homework, or I don't look kind of like a hypocrite for making my child learn Ukrainian but not being able to function as highly as they can." So that was quite interesting. Is that similar in the in the Greek Cypriot community or the the Greek slash Cypriot community, Pedros? Yes, yes, it's very similar, yeah. Brilliant. Okay, so we've talked so much about about so many different aspects of heritage languages and I'm going to start wrapping up. And something I wanted to know from both of you is whether there is a drive in those communities to 
campaign for a different status of those languages or to at least get funding for more complementary education? Sort of where's it all, where's it going to come from? Um, I mean, it's, there are efforts uh, both from individual communities and from the National Resource Centre for Supplementary Education to raise a profile of, um, of, complementary schools and the work that they do. Uh, there are also now uh, four major uh, projects funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council through the Open World Research Initiative uh, that f are focusing on languages, multilingualism, and the study of the study of them in the UK um, in as part of this campaign to raise a profile of multilingualism in this country. Um, but always, always there's a lot more that can be done in terms of um, different people, different communities coming together and working together towards achieving these, their aims of raising the profile of the languages, getting more support from them, um, getting more funding. Um, now, um, usually communities come together when they face uh, similar challenges, like, for example, around um, uh, some years ago, uh, in 2010-11, I believe, um, the, the exam boards in the UK uh, said that they would stop uh, offering uh, the GCSE and A-level in a number of languages, including Turkish, uh, Greek, um, I think uh, Urdu, but I might be mistaken. So the, the, the relevant communities reacted to that. They, um, there was a campaign to, uh, to, uh, keep those GCSEs and A-levels. A lot of communities see those qualifications as, uh, a form of sort of recognition and legitimization of the linguistic skills. And the then minister, uh, um, Secretary for Education, Nikki Morgan, sort of intervened and those GCSEs and A-levels are still being offered. Uh, but that was a very specific issue um, that communities sort of came together to address and, and achieve something very, very tangible. Um, what I'm trying to say is that communities need to form a more sort of central and um, coordinated effort to raise the profile of, of these languages, make their presence known, make known to the wider to wider society the role that they play in in the lives of a very, very large proportion of the UK's population and also more widely internationally as well. Mm -hmm. And I think things like, um, say, Manchester, they have a network for supplementary schools. So they have a meeting every so often and it's a place where issues can be discussed. So that's one way in which people with a kind of shared interest, but from different communities come together. But I think I'm not sure we've mentioned it so far, but complementary schools are often voluntary. So often the people that are responsible for running the schools and teaching these languages, they're volunteers who often have a full-time job in the week. And I think, so they're doing this alongside the rest of their life, basically. And I think that's like, yeah, they're, they're volunteers. So it's kind of, these movements might be quite hard to kind of, well, not hard, but that's probably why they're sometimes not as visible. Often the people that work in these schools are quite busy with the rest of their lives. And I think, yeah, the, the fact that these schools are voluntary and often don't get that much financial support other than kind of uh, parents paying the school fees 
is quite kind of something probably should have mentioned earlier that they are voluntary organizations mm. Mm, that's yeah there's there's definitely a long it feels like there's a long way still to go almost like you know we're we're at the start of of these of this type of education even even gaining any kind of profile and still it's it's kind of swimming against the tide it's kind of crazy to think that kind of our knowledge and kind of research into such schools is so kind of new given that quite a lot of these schools have been around for 50 60 plus years and we're only just starting to learn a little bit more about them and what they do that's yeah it's amazing okay we've we've come to the end of the time but it's you've made me want to just go and visit one even just to find out more uh, just find out more about it and perhaps talk to talk to some of the people there who who are who are working on them so that's definitely a podcast product uh, project for the future <laughs> gonna have to have to go and do some reporting uh from complementary schools this is this has been very very interesting uh if you could leave us with perhaps one one tip if somebody has f has the feeling that they've lost a heritage language or they want to regain it so one place one place to look is there a web resource or any kind of you know first place to look uh i would say um that they would they should look to get as much exposure to the language they want to relearn as possible. Uh, they should look for any type of resource that gives them that input and exposure, if it's any type of language class or uh, social um, uh, activity that involves that language, if and if it is uh, watching films or the news or reading or seeing watching videos on YouTube, uh, conversing with other people, doing language exchanges in, in in that language, anything that basically will give them the opportunity to use that language as much as possible, um, because that is what really makes a difference. Um, so it, in terms of this, I can't think of sort of a sort of central sort of point of reference where people uh, should go. So each local community, each language community, each diaspora will have its own um, uh, its own resources, its own infrastructure. Um, so I would say the key message is try and speak it. Don't feel embarrassed to speak it. Don't feel embarrassed to make mistakes. Don't feel embarrassed to speak slowly. Just try and speak your language as much and as frequently as possible. Mm. That makes a lot of sense, definitely. So it's a good for for anybody. Like even if I think back to how I speak my dialect at home, I always feel self conscious. I try to speak it to my parents, um, and I know they're just looking at me like, "What are you? What are you doing? Like, what are you trying to do here?" But but it's it's a case of you just have to claim it and go like, "No, this is important to me." Uh -huh. I think kind of language learning and practicing a language, if it's a foreign language or a heritage language, it's about being fearless, I think. The amount of silly things I have accidentally said in various languages, like I, if I had a pound for each one, I'd be very <laughs> rich. So yeah, yeah, being fearless, I think, definitely. And you almost have to combat the feeling that, well, you know, I... I knew this when I was two, I should be better at this and just, you know, meet yourself where you're at. 
Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Brilliant. To conclude the podcast interview, what I always do is I say goodbye in English and then ask my guests to say goodbye in any language of their choice. So thank you, first of all, Petros and Katie, for taking so much time to to talk to me, for sharing your your research, your experience. It's an, It's a fascinating topic. I feel like we still just scratch the surface of heritage and community languages. So listeners of this show, definitely going to have a lot of interest and you know many 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 will have benefited just from hearing your perspectives on this topic uh, so I want to say thank you very very much um, and with that I'm going to hand off it's goodbye from me goodbye it's goodbye from Katie Harrison and it's goodbye from Petros Karatsareas Thank you for listening to The Fluent Show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show by leaving a review in your podcast app or even becoming a member of our Patreon community where our supporter perks include a secret feed full of added show notes and a VIP option where you can get priority answers to your listener questions on the podcast. Don't forget that you can send us your language questions and feedback to hello at fluentlanguage.co.uk or find us on Twitter at The Fluent Show or Instagram, hashtag The Fluent Show. We're always so excited to hear from you and read every message and review. See you next week.